production. Today we head to Cairns in far north Queensland to kick off an eight-part series showcasing amazing businesses in regional Queensland. In these special episodes, you'll meet not one, but two inspiring business owners. And today's businesses could not be more different from each other. Australia's largest aquarium and one of regional Australia's largest publishers. It's a tropical episode 567 of the 12-year-old, award-winning, small business, big marketing podcast. Well, I said, welcome to a small business marketing show, where successful small business owners share their souls. To take your marketing straight to the lead, now here's your host, Mr. Tim Reed. And welcome back to your weekly dose of off-the-beaten-track marketing. I'm your host, Timbo Reed, and I have an insatiable curiosity for uncovering marketing strategies and ideas that help businesses just like yours to grow. You, so much more importantly, are a motivated business owner, ready to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. And that is exactly why I do what I do in order to... To help you grow. As per usual, team, there's marketing G-O-L-D dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ. So let's get stuck right in. Grab your swag and your favourite pillow because for the next few weeks, you and I are off on a road trip. Not literally, of course, although that would be a lot of fun. But for the next eight weeks, we'll be travelling from Cairns all the way down to the Gold Coast. A lazy wait for it, 1,849 kilometres. And we're going to meet some amazing business founders who've set up businesses and lifestyles they love outside of the big smoke. We'll discover the upside and downside of doing business in regional Australia. Plus, you'll get all the usual marketing gold you're used to. So to kick things off, we're heading to Cairns where Bree James, the founder of PacMag, not PacMan, PacMag, started the longest-standing privately-owned parenting publication in Queensland. PacMag stands for Parent and Kids magazine. There you go. And she's a content-creating machine. But first, let's meet Daniel Leipnick, the founder of the Cairns Aquarium, one of the largest aquariums in Australia, turning over $10 million per annum, employing 55 staff with 16,000 fish Swimming in a whopping 5 million litres of water, the creation of the Cairns Aquarium is a beautiful story of a boyhood dream that became a reality. So let's go and find out how Daniel raised the tens of millions of dollars required to build his dream, how a tourist attraction of this magnitude has cleverly navigated its way through COVID, and what role marketing has played in its success. I started off by asking Daniel why and how he came to realise his incredible dream. Well, it's certainly been a very interesting journey, but I think when I look back, my journey to become an aquarium owner started when I was about three years of age and my parents actually bought me my very first goldfish in a plastic bowl, (laughs) which I was, uh, I don't remember at the time that I was so fascinated by it, but certainly as I was growing up, uh, I wanted to have more and more fish and that little plastic bowl turned into a, a bigger fish tank and then a larger one and then multiple ones. And even as a teenager, I remember my whole bedroom was full of different fish tanks. And then um, when I was about 17 and 18, I moved on to having amphibians and reptiles and rodents and mammals. And 
by about 18 years of age, I had 200 snakes, lizards, reptiles, and fish in the house. Oh, I love uh, it. And so it was, yeah, it was quite a menagerie. And you're I was one of those kids. And one of those kids. So, <laughs> so, you know, to all the families out there, be careful what you let your kids do in life. <laughs> so um, so that, that's, but- that's awesome. That sounds like an incredible childhood. How does one then go from, you know, loving amphibians and fish and reptiles and all that kind of stuff to actually starting an aquarium and not just any old aquarium. I mean, like I said in your intro, you've got like 16,000 fish. You've got, you know, how many litres of water? Some ridiculous amount, 5 yeah, million litres. Yeah, 5 million litres of water and 71 live exhibits. Yeah, so I think my love of animals and nature went dormant for a few years when I was uh, heavily involved in different business activities. But my partner and I were actually out on the Great Barrier Reef in 2007, just on a holiday. And we, we actually went to one of the islands. It was Green Island. And we noticed at the time, a lot of the tourists uh, were not going into the water. They were hovering around the islands. They were going in the um, underwater glass bottom boats, uh, but not actually scuba diving or snorkeling. And there was a real light bulb moment that occurred to us at the time, which is you've got thousands of people that have traveled across the world to Cairns and the Great Barrier Reef that have paid a lot of money to go out for a reef trip and aren't actually going in the water. So when we got back to land in that following week, we were, we were so bewildered by this situation because there were just so many people that weren't going in the water. We actually had meetings with some of the government departments and, and uh, tourism bureau departments like TTNQ, and we kind of discovered there was a very large demographic of people that either don't feel comfortable in the water, can't swim. Some of them are quite <laughs> scared because of different TV shows of uh, things like marine stingers or, or other kinds yeah. of marine animals. So putting all of that together made us realize, in addition to our love of nature and animals, that we wanted to bring the best of the Great Barrier Reef and the wet tropics rainforest into an indoor location for everyone who uh, wants to see all these creatures but may not be able to, to come and enjoy them. Okay, so you've identified a very real problem and a very real opportunity. You go and talk to some government departments who... They're nodding their head going, that sounds reasonable. We might be able to find some money to finance your idea. But I imagine starting an aquarium of the size that you have is not cheap. Like, how do you get to the point of turning that first bit of dirt and how much does it cost? So the overall project cost was about $50 million and it was done over a series of stages. So we knew that to achieve our vision of bringing the Great Barrier Reef and the wet tropics to people that couldn't see it, as well as to those that loved it and wanted to see more, would involve an aquarium. I mean, that, that's how you achieve mm. the answer to that problem. So the very first start was to actually work on a business plan. So we, we wrote a, um, and, and well before any talks with government to any degree or even lenders, we needed to satisfy ourselves that there was actually a mm. business need for this. So we wrote a 300-page business plan and also brought on several consultants, either in the aquarium, tourism, or leisure space, um, and also worked with some external marketing firms to develop market feasibility and market economic studies. So we knew it was going to be a massive endeavor and a life-changing event for us, and we really wanted to satisfy ourselves and do that very critical business planning. So after a year of writing a 300-page business plan, that gave us the confidence that a project like this would have merits in Cairns. And, and of course, an aquarium is not a new idea globally and certainly not in Australia. There are four or five other public aquariums of a world-class standard, but certainly 
in a new place and with a new kind of concept, you've got to redevelop everything and, and design mm. it specifically to your market. So after the first year, when we recognized that there was um, fundamentally the right business reasons and economic feasibility for it, we then started talking to the different government departments about what support there might be, as well as to lenders, and also started looking for a parcel of land. One of the things that we had difficulties with is no one could kind of progress our project, whether it be lenders or government or anything, until they knew where this vision was going to go. So we had to find a parcel of land so we could say the aquarium is going yeah, in it. that ne- spot. You needed to make it tangible. You, Correct. you know what yep. fascinates me about people like you and about business owners generally who I'm just so in awe of is, okay, it's a passion. You're into it. It's a $50 million build to bring your passion to life. You do a 300-page business plan. Well done to you because many don't. But I need to be simplistic here, and this is where you can call me on it, but you've got 50 million bucks to recover, right, before you start making any money. And in order to make money, you've got an entry fee, you've got a cafeteria, you've got probably a function area where you put on functions, but there seems to be, you'd have to sell a lot of entry tickets and do a lot of functions and do all sell a lot of souvenirs to not only repay that, but actually to make a proper living from it. So what am I missing besides courage? So that's, that's, that's where the business plan was very effective. And I would certainly encourage any listeners, anyone who's thinking about starting a business to really work hard and ask yourself those very fundamental questions. Appoint consultants, whether it's a, an accountant, lawyers, business advisors, do the homework first. So um, no doubt. What, what that business plan also pointed out was, was to examine what size the aquarium needs to be and how much do we need to spend in order to recoup exactly as you said, to actually make this business profitable and also build it to safeguard it for future expansion. So there's a lot of those questions that needed answering in this document. Because for instance, let's just say you're able to access money. How big do you go or how small do you go? So one thing we had to actually ask ourselves was, Um, okay, we can make it for a lot cheaper, but what happens with Australia's population growing? Mm -hmm. What happens with um, tourism numbers, especially international tourists growing quite significantly in Australia? How do you make sure that you have a product that people are going to enjoy, that they're going to speak highly of, like with online reviews? Yeah, right. And people are going to Mm -hmm. not discard you because they think it's just too small and not worth going to, which is the case of a lot of small attractions in Australia. So there was a lot to have to consider which is where that business plan really, really came into play. And Daniel, how so, accurate, you're, you're in business, you've been in business for a number of years now. How accurate yeah. has the business plan been to reality? Uh, the business plan was unfortunately only about 50% accurate in terms of visitor numbers. Um, but what it didn't factor in was that Cairns was going to have quite a significant reduction in visitation after we opened. And that was a result of various factors and, of course, more recently, the impacts of COVID. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't factor in some of the wider international macroeconomic impacts. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think, though, if it wasn't for some of those issues, we would have been right on target. Tell us about the aquarium. Well, actually, before you tell us, because oh, I'm fascinated today, what kind of fish you got in there and what's the biggest attraction, but tell us about opening day because, you know, that must have been an incredibly exciting moment for you and your partner. 
Yeah, opening day was was uh, was so incredible. It was both a relief in many ways, but of course, incredibly exhilarating. And just before I go into that, yeah. the we had we had approximately four years of design and engineering work involving. 25 individual firms and 250 specialist consultants. So these are specialist architects, different designers, interior designers, exterior designers, landscapers, graphic artists, um, all disciplines of engineering. Exactly. <laughs> so even prior, to, even prior to building, there was $8 million of costs of design and engineering and government approvals. Uh, and then we had two years of building. So it was six years of design, engineering, and building even before Open Day. And prior to Open Day, we had approximately six months of commissioning all of the exhibits and the living systems. So Open Day was the culmination of approximately six or six and a half years of full-time work, almost seven days a week, getting ready to that point where you're actually ready to let the public come through. Were you working elsewhere? Was this a side hustle up until a point of time? How often do you water your money trees, or are you do you have do you, are you the son of some royal family set up that if we only, don't know about? <laughs> if only, if only. No, I've, I've worked my whole career, you know, developing up some good earnings, mainly through property investments and uh-huh. some other investments. So really, this is all about putting our life savings into a product which we really believe in. And again, um, this is born out of a desire to connect people with nature, to have people leave feeling that they want to do more for the planet. This is much broader than just a tourism business. This really for us is a lifelong journey of, you know, trying to do good for the planet through education and conservation. I think you read Simon Sinek's book and it feels to me like you have a very, very, very deep why. Would you like to share that? Why do I care so much about the planet? Um, Because we only have one of them. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they okay. So your why is about saving the world. Yes. Yep. It's mm-hmm. um, it's just doing our part as much as we can with every visitor that comes through to make them go beyond the aquarium and help in their daily lives to you know help with the planet. But yeah, open day was absolutely amazing. I think we had close to three thousand people um, a day for two weeks. So it was actually a, a, a two week kind of celebration. Uh, it was just. Yeah, it was just so uh, exhilarating. Uh, a night a night before, we had a major gala dinner where we had all the dignitaries and um, different lenders and all the people that contributed to the project. It, it was the first day where the public en masse came through the place. Uh, and it was certainly something that stands out to me as one of, the, one of the most amazing achievements you can have when you actually start actually getting revenues in yeah. after six and a half years of spending. <laughs> that would have felt incredible. Yeah. What is uh, your biggest attraction? Our largest exhibit is our 1.8 million litre Coral Sea Oceanarium. So this is a 30 metre by 20 metre, almost 5 metre deep major exhibit that has all the predators of the open ocean and coral sea. So the large sharks, stingrays, large groper, trevally, all those large predatory Uh animals that most people don't get to see because they live in the open ocean. So that's our largest exhibit. But one of the things that people are most impressed about is a deep reef exhibit. And this is the tallest tank in Australia and one of the tallest in the world. It's almost 10 metres tall. And it has about a 1,000 fish in there, which are the species over the reef drop-off. So at the edge of the Great Barrier Reef, it actually drops down. continental shelf, whatever it's called. Correct, yeah. It drops down about 2,500 metres to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. And that's where you have the highest amount of biodiversity. And so, again, people get to see the fish and animals that live off that shelf, 
which they won't normally get because they don't go diving in those deep areas. What's your most prized possession? That is a really hard one to answer, but uh, I guess the thing that comes to mind is we have um, Australia's only breeding collection of emerald tree monitors. And these are a green tree-dwelling monitor that lives right in the canopies. Uh, They're actually considered extinct in Australia due to uh, land clearing, climate change and invasive species. They're not found in Cape York anymore. And so we've got a breeding colony. And they're this amazing, vibrant green lizard that, that is just very, very beautiful. Where does one buy sharks and octopuses and tree <laughs> monitors? <laughs> is there some so, kind of wacky marketplace somewhere that I don't know about? Or you just almost, go to eBay? almost. The livestock comes from a variety of sources. We're very fortunate. There's a company in Cairns that has all the licenses and permits to oh, extract wow. wildlife ethically from the Great Barrier Reef and the wet tropics river systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so they'll go and collect everything under license. They will bring them into captivity, put them into quarantine where they get rid of any ticks or parasites, get them feeding, get them used to aquatic parameters, and then they will hand them over to aquariums. And this is a second generation business. They've been supplying public aquariums all over the world for 20 or 30 years now. What do you pay for a shark, just out of interest? Well, it does vary. Uh, on average, for a smallish shark, um, somewhere around seven and a half to twelve thousand dollars. Seems reasonable. Seems reasonable. <laughs> um, the, the cost is not so much. It's more. It's more things like um, the upkeep. You know, upkeep. an average shark can eat four to six kilos of fish a day. Yeah. Uh, not to mention, of course, keeping them in pristine water quality and having divers clean tanks. And you know, it's the running cost I, which I, actually are uh, considerable. Daniel, you purchase goods and services from 200 Queensland companies. Correct. Uh, is, this, is this a company policy? Uh, would you be doing a lot better if you went over the border? Is it just part of the, the way you do business? Yeah, uh, we, we certainly have a mandate to support local businesses and certainly Australian businesses. Uh, we've also found that, yes, there are better prices to be had from international supply chains, such as in China, but the quality is not there. So wherever we can, we work with Australian sources and primarily local, and it does support our region. And, and, you know, the Cairns region only has about 170,000 people. It's a really relatively small town. Anything we can do to support the local economy just Mm. means more families have uh, revenue streams and they're more likely to come and visit us. So it really just benefits everyone around us. What role marketing, Daniel, in, in promoting the Cairns Aquarium? Is it something you have a deep respect for or is it a pain and something you just feel like you have to do? The sales and marketing side is something that I actually spearhead myself. Mm. Um, it is something that we have to do a lot of. And the aquarium is, a, is an important fixture in a lot of sales and marketing of this region, both interstate, yeah. interstate and internationally. So one of the things that I've done when the borders were actually open was I worked with a lot of the local major tourism attractions and experiences here. And we did trade missions overseas to Asia, Europe and North America. As a collective, we what's called hunted in a pack. And we actually promoted Cairns and Queensland to mm-hmm. overseas wholesalers, which encouraged them to then on-sell the region and Australia as a, as a tourist destination to their markets. So on a day-to-day basis, we are constantly doing sales and marketing to make people aware that there's an aquarium in Cairns and also inspire people to want to come to Cairns to visit the region. Uh, and that's just a constant thing. You see, with, with, with an attraction, uh, a tourist attraction or even a tourist experience, you don't have the luxury necessarily of repeat visitors. Hmm. So it is an ongoing requirement where you have to educate the market that you exist so they'll actually want to come and visit you. 
pre-COVID, COVID obviously changed everything, but pre-COVID, were, what was the split between domestic marketing dollars spent and international dollars spent? And how do you decide where to spend internationally? So we were doing about 15% international, 85% domestic. But that was because in our first year of operations, we focused wholly on the Australian market as the market that was most accessible to us. In the second year, we started working with some Chinese wholesalers and Southeast Asia. And in our third year, we just started going overseas to the what's called the Western markets, which is North American Europe. So it was a progression. And of course, it came to a, a grinding halt with COVID. But mm. we geared up based on market accessibility to us uh, in terms of where we could fly to and, and budgets. COVID, um, you, you told me off air about a number of pivots. You got guided tours, refocus on domestic market, new collabs and partnerships, which is interesting, and multi-skilling staff. So you haven't stood still. You haven't thrown your hands in the air and gone, well, this is a hopeless situation. You, you, you know, you're making the best of what's available to you. Correct. So one of the things that we launched specifically for Australian travellers is these after-hours guided tours through the aquarium when all the public is gone and also it involved a three-course dinner. So what we found is that many Australians wanted to be in small groups where they felt safe mm. and there was an exclusive offering and we could actually take them and do something a little bit unusual so they're not with the larger groups of people. And that has proven to be incredibly popular and it also provides that safety because people can spread out more and get that guided tour. So they feel like it's something very, very special for them. Such a great idea. Just personalised, it's special, it's, you know, it's a real experience, which uh, I think many businesses could probably Correct. put their sort of thinking cap on and go, how can we offer that to our customers beyond what they normally expect from us? Daniel, I just think it's such a great story. You're, you're like the Willy Wonka of, of aquariums. Do you ever get that sense? You know, Willy Wonka would stroll out of his chocolate factory with his walking stick and purple coat. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I mean, <laughs> we've taken a very, very large gamble and we weren't expecting things like COVID, of course. But, you know, it is important to have a vision and have a dream and also work towards them and create things. And let's face it, the world around us is exactly that. It is examples mm -hmm. of people that wake up and say, I'd like to do something unique and innovative. And I think we're very lucky in Australia. There is government support out there for commercializing new ideas and also for the different stages towards commercialization. And that gives you and lenders the confidence that um, the government does back uh, pre-commercialization and commercialization. But certainly, you know, everything is possible in life. And mm. I was very lucky. I had parents and grandparents that were an incredible motivation to me. They were immensely successful in what they did in turning dreams into reality. And I certainly would encourage people that really everything in life is possible. Hallelujah, brother. Cansaquarium.com.au is where you can continue that discussion with Daniel, who you'll probably see wandering around, feeding the monitors and... Um, <laughs> patting the shark on the head. Daniel, thank you so Absolutely. much for sharing and, and well done to you. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. There you go, team. Cairns Aquarium founder, Daniel Leipnick. What a great story. How inspiring were his forced pivots during COVID, including the night tours with a three-course meal outside the shark tank. Better outside than in. Hope he wasn't serving flake or shark fin soup. Wouldn't have gone down too well. Hey, I especially love his everything is possible philosophy. I hear that a lot with the successful business owners that I'm very fortunate enough to interview. If something grabbed your attention, let me know by calling the Small Business Big Marketing Hotline on 0480 015 150. 
Okay, team, let's go meet Bree James, our next exceptional Cairns business owner. Now, amongst other businesses that she runs, Bree is the founder of PacMag, which stands for Parents and Kids Magazine, which she launched with absolutely no print or publishing experience way back in 2007. Did the internet even exist back then? Now, turning over more than a million dollars per annum, Bree and her 11 employees have printed and distributed over 4 million copies for families in far north Queensland. I reckon you're going to love what Bree has to share, from her tips on effective content creation and community engagement to her crazy launch idea that happened at 2am and didn't quite go to plan. And Bree's can-do attitude is a breath of fresh regional Queensland air. I started off by asking Bree what inspired her to start PacMag all those years ago. I think uh, I was out of my mind, to be honest with you. I was studying full-time to be a primary school teacher. And I, was, um, I was a musician by night, four nights a week singing and um, doing a lot of kids' kids shows. And I just found that parents would always come up to me and they'd say, Brie, I wish we had known you were, you know, you were performing. We would have bought the kids. And I got really frustrated. And I thought, you know what? There needs to be a what's on guy for family. So, yes, even though I'd never worked in print, never sold advertising, was a D-grade English student. I'd just failed, actually, my uni um, <laughs> exam in English. Um, don't tell anyone. Um, and I didn't have children. I thought I'd start a parenting magazine so that uh, people could be better connected to the community. But this is obviously way before, you know, people had websites and Facebook and, and things like that. So, so yeah, it was pretty crazy. Well, there was, yeah, I mean, there was hardly anything like we have today. Well, MySpace would have been the number one social media channel, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I, look, I think I had a profile, but, you know, you never really used it. It yeah. was uh, MS, MSN Messenger, I think, was about oh, as wow. good as it got. Incredible to think back internet. to those days when you I think know. about like what you what we've got now, and a whole lot easier it would be today to launch what you did way back in 2007, 14 years oh, ago. Oh yes, a lot easier. I think you know my launch consisted of partnering uh, with the radio station here and um, Triple M, which have <laughs> yeah. been huge supporters. We did a you know some live crosses, and I went out at midnight about 2 a.m. and put some signage out in the highway. <laughs> And by 5am, it was gone. I was devastated. So oh, uh, that, no. was, that, that was uh, <laughs> how you marketed your business back then. Good old school ways. That, that's quite brave of you. So you launched immediately into some, some radio when you launched PacMag. Yes. Good on you. Well, a great yes. way to raise awareness, I guess, right off the bat. Absolutely. And I think, you know, that support really ingrained me in the community straight away. Like, you know, that partnership that we had, you know, all about local events and local things. Um, It's been a partnership that we've had for a really long time and we've done some really great things together. And it's important to build partnerships really early on. Come back to the marketing of PacMag. I'm interested to know that, you know, that concept, the um, minimum viable product, you heard that that MVP talk, you know, it gets banded oh, yeah. around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when you launched PacMag, and I, I'm guessing today's version of PacMag is infinitely better than what it was 14 years ago. Were you that type of entrepreneur that just got something to market knowing that it was slightly broken or not as good as it could be? When I look back on the very first edition of PacMag, I really, I cringe. It looks like vomit on pages. Um, it's just badly designed. You know, the content, there was typos all through it. 
two all-nighters to get it off to print. And when I sent it off to print, they told me it was six pages short. So then we had to try and pull six more pages together. I pretty much decided I was going to do it and launch six weeks later. So, you know, and I raised enough revenue to pay for that first print run. Mm -hmm. And that was my main aim. I was just so driven by passion. I really, I didn't have a business plan. I didn't have a marketing plan. I just had this really hard driven passion to help mm. families as much as I could. And that was what was driving it. Um, it's it had it's really to refreshing do. to hear and see because I do come across probably too many business owners that whether they're new to business or whether they're actually just wanting to launch an, an, an initiative into an existing business, they're sort of waiting for perfection. And we know perfection doesn't come. So get it out there and let the market kind of tell you what's wrong and fix it. If I think if I had have overthought it, I wouldn't have done it. So for mm. me, it was all about just servicing that audience that were thirsty for information. You know, the newspaper always printed everything after it happened, mm. and there was nothing really preempting and telling everyone what was happening in the community a month in advance. So I was purely driven on passion, and that's you know how it started, and that's how it's still going today. So, so PacMag initially was print. At what point did you go online? Initially, we we pretty much tried to start a website straight away. You know, why not? Which, I've always, <laughs> Why not? Was it, was it the first um, so, one in Cairns? Look, probably one of the very first ones. Uh, let me tell you, finding information about what was happening in the community was a challenge. There's mm. a lot of phone calls because you couldn't just research it on the internet. Mm. So I think I knew that I had to do more than the average Joe, if that makes sense. We had to be in people's faces. So we did, you know, the print magazine, we did events uh, every single month. You know, we did build that website and try and build that community. Uh, as soon as the uh, software sort of came out, when Facebook came out, we were an early adopter. It's just been, you know, one of those things that we've had to just learn and, and evolve as, as time has gone on. So I've learned a lot. You must be very strong in strategic partnerships, which we talk a lot about on this show in terms of, you know, finding those those other businesses, those other brands that have the attention of, in your case, parents and kids, and then teaming up with them and, you know, doing a bit of a, a quid pro quo. I would have thought the first major strategic partnerships would be in distribution. How did you get distribution around cans and then further down the coast? Big smile on your face. <laughs> Yeah, look, and that was a huge strategy of mine um, from the very beginning because, you know, uh, there were other magazines that weren't targeted at families that were in the community. It was called City Life, I think, back in the day. And I used to love that magazine. You'd always find it, but it was in a coffee shop with, you know, do not remove on it. And yeah, yeah. Um, I, I always found it really frustrating that, you know, I wanted this product, but I couldn't get it. So I reversed our distribution so that people would actually actively go out and get it. So we partnered with McDonald's really early on and IGAs uh, and How Coles. How do you just partner? You, you just mentioned two big brands, one of, one of the biggest global brands in the world, who they're not easy to get past the Dobermans at McDonald's. IGA, big Australia's biggest independent supermarket chain. Now, you cannot just say, oh, we, we, we partnered with IGA and McDonald's in the early days. How? <laughs> I think it's finding that benefit for, for all parties, that triple win. So for me, it was a benefit to have, you know, my magazines in such high profile locations, but for them, it was a benefit because we were heavily pushing, go and get your free copy from these locations. So oh. people were literally going into McDonald's because they wanted a pack mag, their kids wanted a pack mag and you don't walk out of there empty handed, right? Mm-hmm. So it was a huge benefit for them as well. That pester power of children was a huge thing that, you know, I made sure we had in the magazine uh, from day dot. We had that little centerfold that kids could win, you know, movie tickets and prizes and, you know, they wanted to enter the colouring in competition. Mm-hmm. Like McDonald's had that little pester power where children want that thing and you have to go and get it when you're a parent, you know? <laughs> pester power. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Tell me, you now have 
have experience both online and offline. I, there's there's a, a saying around that, which is when everyone else is shouting, you whisper. So everyone's shouting online these days. And I would argue that a whisper is in the printed form. Do you have a view on the printed form of content these days? Is it still strong? Is it still in demand? Or, you know, should we, we forget it? No, look, I think niche publications are really strong. You know, Coles and Woolworths magazine, they've had a 10, 20% increase uh, in their pickup rates through their checkouts in the last 12 months. You know, and National Geographic is the prime example of a brand that, you know, they've been in publishing magazines for over 80 years, I think it is. And I think it's that trusted medium. There's so many medias out there that have an element of distrust to them now. You know, when you pick up a well-resourced magazine like National Geographic, you trust the information that's in there. You believe that it's been well-researched, that it's, you know, true, it's honest, and it's covering both sides of the equation. Mm. And I think, you know, print publications, they're one of the only thing that you can do and you can't do anything else. You know, you can't scroll your phone and, and observe and read a magazine at the same time. I personally can't even listen to anything else in the background when I'm reading. I need to, mm. you know, I like to focus. Um, and I think, you know, niche magazines that have a really targeted, amazing content in it, you know, readers do still love that keen aesthetic product. 40% of people still like to touch and feel, even though everyone was thinking we'd never print a book again, that ebooks were going to rule the world and we'd never print anything again. Mm. Books and printed books are going through the roof. People still yeah, love that to hold things in their hand. And 40% of people, like I said, are keen aesthetic learners. They need to touch and feel and it feels like that me time. So I definitely think other forms of print, maybe newspapers, they can't print things as fast as, you know, we're getting the news on social media. But things that teach you things you didn't want to know, I think is still really important. PacMag, I imagine, is a content-hungry machine. You told me off-air that you're publishing five articles per day. Now, we've got a whole lot of business owners listening to this. They know they should be creating content marketing, whether it be blogging or social media or podcasts or whatever it is. Give us a little bit of insight and, you know, maybe your number one tip around how to not only create but curate content. Quality content is just so important now. And I think, you know, people, they don't like to be sold to. They want to be educated. They want to learn something. And I think, you know, we underestimate the power of content. You know, and people are Googling things all the time. How can I do this? How can I do that? Um, so if you want your web- website to rank higher, you need to have that SEO driven content mm. that really helps people. And I think, you know, the more people that you can help, you know, the more problems that you solve, the more useful that you're going to be for people. Okay, um, so, so- and, and I still want to get your tip on, on curating and, and creating, but I just want to ask you then, so many listening are going, yeah, but there is so much content out there. I don't want to add to it. I don't want to be responsible for creating more content. What do you say to them? I say, just stop being silly. You know, it's not your voice. It's not who you are, you know, and I think everyone's got a different voice and everyone else has got an opinion. You know, the people that want to work with you, they want to hear from you. They want to know who you are. They want to know your thoughts and opinions and feelings. You know, that's the way business is in the 21st century. It's not just transactional anymore. They want to learn from you. That's why all the biggest brands are, you know, Think of BCF, for instance, you know, they're they're teaching men how to fish better um, and they sell more products from it as well. And that's content marketing. It's teaching people how to use your things better and teaching them how to engage with your products and your business in a way deeper level than just transactional. I think it's really, really important. Okay, so back to that tip about, there's, there's two actually. How does one get into the routine of creating content and how does one get into the routine of curating content? 
Look, I think it's like going to the gym. You're not going to get results if you just go once a year. It's definitely having that routine that you go every every week, every Friday, I write for an hour about something that's going to improve the life of somebody. Even if it just helps one person, it was worth that time. And so I think, you know, my team and I, we're, we uh, last week, we're planning for our content for the whole of 2022 um, wow. for the print side of the magazine. So we spend a whole day brainstorming and we work out what we're going to put in the magazine for the whole year. It sounds like a really big task, but it's actually harder when you're doing it constantly. And yes. you know, if we had to plan every single month what we're going to do that month, it would be quite arduous. But because we spent dedicate a whole entire day to it and we just, obviously it's fluid. We can chop and change if we wish. Um, you know, obviously last year with COVID, you know, we had to change a, a few things mm. around. But, you know, having that that really solid foundation um, and that goal, you know, print deadlines really help. We ha- can't miss our deadline. So I think if you, you know, just believe that I cannot miss this deadline, my editor, even though it just make up a fake editor in your head, uh, my editor yeah. needs this needs this story and I must do it. You know, yeah. um, that's why personal trainers are great because they make us get results. You just have to have that self-control and that power hour of writing that you dedicate to or power day of writing that you do once a month and you write all of the content for the month. I think blocking out that time and strategic thinking about it and committing to it um, is, really is really like, important. I really like the thought of, you know, the fact that you've planned 2022 now, we are in August 2021, is is really impressive. And you're not necessarily creating that content, but at least, you know, let's say, you know what the content for PacMag is in June next year. So now, I guess you've got your marketing radar or your content radar on and when something 100%. comes your way, it's like, oh, that's perfect for June next year. And you put it in a manila folder or something a little bit more. <laughs> no, we're 20. a little bit digital these days, but, you, you know, I am much. a bit woo-woo. <laughs> I think that I'm a little bit woo-woo. So that power of intention, even just, you know, knowing yes. that we want that story, you'd be surprised how many experts just all of a sudden start flooding our inbox wanting to do collaborations with us. And we're like, ah, oh, that's we need that story for June next year. Perfect. Mm. We'll run that podcast then. And, you know, it, it really having that, that foundation and that plan really, really helps. Takes a lot of the brain work out. Brie, being in Cairns in a regional city in far north Queensland, has that been a great asset to allowing PacMag to get what it is now? It's a million dollar turnover business a year. Yeah, definitely. When I started PacMag, it was quite, you know, oh, I live in a regional space and, you know, no one's going to take me seriously. I'm a female. I'm 26 years of old age. I'm blonde, you know, <laughs> people, you know, and I was dealing with a lot of men and people didn't take me very seriously. But it's so interesting that 14 years later, you know, people wanting to market to families and people wanting to work from home. And, you know, it's such a, it's on trend now. I'm actually trendy. Um, <laughs> so I... <laughs> I guess I guess living regionally has been a complete blessing because you get to know those business owners a lot more than you would if you're in a big city. And I think the community here has been so supportive of me um, and wanted to see me succeed. And that's been really beautiful, you know, for us to be able to go from one region in Cairns to, you know, another 400 kilometres down the road and start in Townsville, then another four, 500 kilometres down the road in Mackay. It's a huge expansive area that we've been covering. It's a huge amount of families. It's an untapped market that no one was servicing and looking after. And, you know, I have people that leave the region and go, you know, they email us, you know, I've moved to Perth. Can you start a pack mag here we really missed the magazine so you know i think you know it's those moments that you go wow we've been so blessed to have so much support in the community uh, of north queensland i it, i love it up here it's such a brilliant place to be 
Brie, you've done so well with it. You're in three markets, like I said, a million dollar turnover. Was there one or two things that come to mind, pivotal moments that you implemented, whether it be a marketing idea or a recruitment drive? I don't know what it was that sort of catapulted PacMag forward by a multiple of, you know, three, four or five? That's a great question. Look, I think it's been open to take on everything that comes your way. I mean, you know, now there's a total overwhelm of different technology. It's a lot easier to run and start a business now than it's ever been, you know, with the amount of software that's out there. You know, being able to go from a purely print, purely uh, community-based business, which, you know, was very one-dimensional, I guess, to be able to be digital, you know, I've had to be a presenter on camera. I mean, gosh, never in my wildest dream that I think that I would be, you know, podcasting, YouTubing. You know, we've got a YouTube channel now that has over 500 to 1,000 hours uh, of content watched every single month. It's extraordinary. So, you know, um, and even the opportunities I've been sent overseas to do travel blogging for the Cairns Airport, uh, you know, to Hong Kong and Singapore. And, you know, I've had to learn all these incredible skills. Um, So I think it's been that transition from being a a traditional business to a digital business, which I call (laughs) Tradigital, you know, and being able to uh, still impact people and have that reach, not just in North Queensland now. You know, we have people from all over the world engaging in our content and I think it's, you know, it's really special and it makes all the hard work worth it. One of your major marketing strategies is putting on events pre-COVID, but you were having events attended by up to 5,000 mums and dads and kids. I love events. I think it's just a, such a great way to bring commu- to build community, to, to eyeball your prospects. Is it a strategy that you also loved and, you know, can't wait to get back into? Absolutely. And I think, you know, my early days of PacMag were me being a performer and I think that's where mm. my entertainment company has been really something that I've been able to leverage with my publishing company because we've been able to pull together huge events, you know, and perform and, you know, have those 5,000 families turn up and enjoy all the local businesses coming, all the entertainment. And I think it's that community, we know, it's what we're missing now, which is that uh, opportunity to be together and celebrate that I think has mm. been what PacMag has been fantastic for. You know, we've had massive Halloween events where the whole families get dressed up uh, when we dance and we have a great time as a family. It's not just about the kids. It's about the parents engaging with their children and having that having that opportunity to, to dress up and let their hair down and really enjoy being together as a collective. I think that's one of the things that has been so pivotal in our success is having that time where we do get our readers together um, as a collective and we just have, you know, one or two hours of just, you know, a massive event, having a crazy time. I really miss it. I really do. So Your your main revenue stream, Brie, is advertisers and sponsors of the magazine, both online and off. Uh, The last couple of weeks, we've had some discussions around, um, we had John Warillo, who he's written a book called The Automatic Customer, which is all about subscription revenue, recurring revenue models. Uh, We've had Tina Tower on talking about creating online education businesses. You get all your money from advertisers. You don't charge a cover price. Are you tempted? Is it too late to shut the doors and to say, hey, this is only available? Or maybe it's it's still available for free, but there's a premium offer where you could charge a regular price because that's going to help with cash flow, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been one of the things that's been a challenge for me for the last few years. I've been trying to work out, you know, we make this revenue from business owners, but, you know, I've got this huge captive audience of readers that my advertisers get 
business from, but we don't earn a dollar from. So yeah. that subscription model um, or that membership model is definitely something that we're working on. Uh, we have uh, created an online course for kids, which, you know, parents are buying for their children, which is interesting. So, you know, my main mission in this world is to empower parents to raise the next generation. And I feel that, you know, we will be doing more online courses and more resources for children to learn cool. soft skills because that's um, definitely really important. Five years time, Bree. It's PacMag in every regional Queensland town. Is it national? Is there aspirations to be overseas? Look, I think for me, I'm only one person. So, you know, we launched a full service marketing company and I've got all these other things. I love PacMag and what it stands for. And if anyone wanted to have a PacMag in their region, I'd really happily help them set up one. And that was, you know, something I wanted to do many years ago is help people set up their own PacMag in their own community. However, my main mission now, I think, is, you know, to keep the print as we have it in North Queensland, but really push that digital education model so uh, that we can educate and help parents and their children be the best they can be. Brilliant. Oh, it's a great story, Brie. And I, you do have, you have so many other, what, what's the word? Bows to your arrow or arrow, arrows to your quiver? Yeah, it was hard or... to decide which business we were going to talk about today, but yes. <laughs> I, <know. Entertainer, laughs> I, I call it business publisher. ADHD. I've got, I got about five or six different companies that I uh, that I work on. So, well, yeah. and that's going to happen more and more. So uh, well done to you for being able to do that because I certainly can't. I'm a bloke. I can only do one thing at a time. <laughs> PacMag, P-A-K-M-A-G.com.au is where you'll find Bree's not-so-little baby anymore. It's uh, doing great things and well done to you, Bree. Thank you so much. Well, there you go, PacMag's Bree James. What a kind and generous offer of hers to train anyone who'd like to start a PacMag in their own region. Let me know if you take it up. I would be very interested. There is so much to love about what Brie has done and is doing to build PacMag. She's a great reminder about the power of content in your marketing mix. So important. Talk about that a lot in my book, The Boomerang Effect. And I love, love, love the fact that she's planning her content so far ahead. Plus, I love that in a world that pretty much lives online these days, that she continues to distribute hard copies of PacMag. Again, if something grabbed your attention, let me know by calling the Small Business Big Marketing hotline on 0480-015-150. Go on, put that number in your phone and give us a buzz one day. Hope you enjoyed our first instalment of this series showcasing amazing businesses in regional Queensland. Next week, we head 350k down the road to Townsville, where we'll meet a real estate agent who launched his business during the 2016 property slump. Couldn't have been worse timing. But now has 39 staff and is the biggest show in town. Plus a young Sparky whose air conditioning business is booming thanks to a clever strategic partnership. If you'd love to know how and why to create some helpful marketing, then do grab a copy of my book, The Boomerang Effect, over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. I'd love to hear what marketing's working for you. So do call the Small Business Big Marketing hotline 0480 015150. If you're loving the podcast, and I hope you are because you got this far, then you'll find 566 more episodes on your favourite podcast app. As has been the case team for the past 12 years, this podcast was presented by me, Timbo Reed, the music bed belted out by rock star Lockie Dolly, and then glued back together by producer Romy Scher. Until next time, thank you so much for tuning in. May your marketing be the absolute best marketing. Bye for now.